1 Peter 1, starting in verse 8. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that you have now been announced to you through those preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent them, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't you just love waiting? Isn't waiting awesome? I mean, this whole season is a time of waiting, right? You're waiting in lines to get things. You're waiting for the stuff you ordered to come and arrive at your door. I got stuck Friday. I was waiting for something to come, and it said it was coming, and it said it was coming. It'll be there between 12 and 5. It'll be there. 5 o'clock rolls around. It's not there. 5.03, it's not there. 5.04, I refresh the page. Where is it? Uh, we're not going to get it to you today. I'm like, I've been all, all day waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. This whole time is full of waiting. You're waiting for the last day of school. You're waiting for, to open your gifts. You're waiting for the best sales to hit. You're waiting, maybe that TV is going to drop a little bit. Maybe that perfume you want to get for your wife is going to drop a little bit. You're waiting for the best times. Maybe you're just waiting for the last minute to buy the gifts. You're waiting for your relatives to come over and cleaning and doing everything while you wait. And then you're waiting for your relatives to leave and get out of there waiting. We are waiting. Christmas is full of waiting. The theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, celebrating Advent means learning how to wait. Waiting is an art which our impatient age has forgotten. And he wrote that decades ago. Imagine what he would write today about our culture that we live in. We've forgotten how to wait, and along the way, we've forgotten what we're actually waiting for, which means that we've forgotten what this whole season of Advent is about. By now, most of you know that December 25th was not actually Jesus' birthday. Uh, we don't know exactly the day he was born. December 25th, this season, was a time Christians chose to start to celebrate Jesus' birth because it was a time when all, a, a whole bunch of other cultures around Europe had celebrations, Winter solstice, I mean, all different kinds of cultures had different kinds of celebrations. And so they said, you know what? We're going to choose this time to remember and celebrate Advent so that we will remember what it is we're waiting for. We'll remember the coming of Jesus into the world, and that'll help us remember what it is we're waiting for down the road. Waiting is a fundamental part of Christmas. Have you ever noticed how much waiting is a part of the Christmas story in Scripture, the Advent story? Elizabeth and Zachariah, do you remember them? The old couple, the parents of John the Baptist, they'd had no children and they were old, well past the time when they should be having or could be having children. And suddenly, after all those years of waiting and hoping and feeling like hope was gone, God intervenes and Elizabeth is pregnant and she gives birth to a son. But remember what happened with Zechariah? Like he didn't believe it at first and so all of a sudden he was struck silent. And that whole time, the nine months she was pregnant, he couldn't talk. 
And everyone's waiting and waiting and waiting. What's he gonna say? What's he gonna say? And it's not until his son is born and they're talking about naming him that finally his tongue is loosed and he's able to say, this is my son, his name is John. He's gonna lead the way to the Messiah, for the Messiah. Waiting, can you imagine Mary waiting from the moment, just put yourself there. Use your imagination, would you? Just put yourself there. You're Mary, and this angel of the Lord comes and says that you're going to miraculously conceive and give birth to the Son of God. God's gonna enter this world through you. And now you gotta wait the nine months. I mean, nine months of pregnancy is already a long time, right? Right? <laughs> I don't know, but... Some of you do, right? There's a lot you go through. There's a lot of stress, a lot of struggle. Um, Compound that with the idea that you are carrying the hope of the world inside of you. And can you imagine how that would have felt to be waiting for that moment? Waiting. Luke's gospel tells us the story of another person who waited a long time. Uh, Some of you will remember the story of Simeon, the old man who was just basically waiting to die. Every day he would go to the temple and and he was waiting to die. He was old, but the Holy Spirit had told him that he wouldn't die until he saw the hope of the world with his own eyes. And so every day he went to the temple. He was a good man, a righteous man, hoping for this hope of the world to arrive. And then in walks Mary and Joseph with Jesus about a week or so after Jesus is born to do what they needed to do with Jesus there. And Simeon, imagine you walk into church and you've got your newborn a week old and an old man just walks up and takes your child from you and holds him and says, now I can die. Because that's what he said. Listen to what he said. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you're one a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Imagine waiting your whole life and knowing this is supposed to come, but when is it gonna come? I'm getting old. When is it gonna happen? I'm fading. (laughs) And then suddenly it's there. But the waiting goes back way further than Mary's waiting or Zechariah and Elizabeth's waiting or Simeon's waiting. The waiting goes back millennia. And that's what Peter's thinking about here in the passage of scripture that Kelly read for us this morning. He says, concerning the salvation that we're all longing for and clinging to, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. And he predicted that the Messiah would come and suffer and then be glorified. And they wanted to know, for thousands of years before Jesus came, They had been waiting and searching. And then he says, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. Imagine that. Imagine you're waiting and waiting and waiting and searching, hoping for the salvation to come from God, hoping for this to happen, and you're you're just eagerly looking forward and you're faithful to God, and then you come to find out, God reveals to you that you're never gonna actually see it with your own eyes on this earth. It's gonna be for generations after you. They're the ones who are gonna see it. And still, even though they knew they weren't gonna be the ones who experienced it, they kept faithfully waiting and passing on that waiting to their children for generation after generation after generation. They had a hope that went beyond their own lives. How far does your hope go today? How long are you willing to wait today? 
This moment we call Christmas is meant to celebrate the ending of a deep, soul-shaking yearning and waiting for God to intervene in this world and set us free. That's what this is about. It's not just, oh, Jesus, come and get me out of here. That, that's too shallow. That, that's too shallow an idea. That's not what scripture teaches. It's, God, please come and set this world right. Bring about new creation. Bring about justice and peace and joy. Generation after generation is waiting. And that's what is all built into Christmas. This time of year, Advent, it's about this waiting. And so picture your children. Those of you who have children, or just picture yourself as a child waiting for that gift. How do they act? They can't wait, they can't sleep. They, it's like they think their life is gonna change when they open their gifts, whenever you open your gifts, Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. We know it's Christmas Eve is the right time. But picture the kids going to open the gifts and wanting to get that with that anxiety, with that, that desire, that longing. That's how we should be feeling. That same desperate longing that makes it hard to sleep some nights because we want God to come and set this world right. Because we're not just waiting for a toy, and we're not just waiting for a baby in a manger. We're waiting for the world to be made right, to be made whole, for peace, for justice, for grace. We're waiting and yearning, and waiting and yearning, and waiting and waiting. That's what that first song we sang was about. There's deep yearning there, and I hope it just didn't wash past you. I hope you felt it. Oh, come, oh, come. God with us, ransom us. I don't know how many of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is or what his story is. He's the guy I quoted at the beginning who said that we've forgotten how to wait. He was a German pastor back during the time of World War II. He's a pastor who resisted the Nazis and spoke out against the way they were treating the Jews. In 1943, the Gestapo showed up and arrested him. They threw him in the prison. And then eventually they threw him into a concentration camp. And then in 1945, ultimately they hanged him. We have a letter he wrote to his fiance from prison during that time. And he told her that waiting in prison there day after day taught him something about Advent, Christmas, about the waiting of Advent. This is, listen to what he wrote to her in this letter. He said, a prison cell in which one waits and hopes and does various things unessential things is completely and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be open from the outside that's not a bad picture of advent he saw himself there in, in this prison cell whittling his days away he can't open the door someone has to come and open the door from the outside and he said that's not a bad picture of advent we're waiting and hoping and we're doing all kinds of stuff we're busying ourselves but what we're waiting and hoping for is someone else to come from outside this prison and open the door and set us free. That's what Advent is about. That's what we need to be remembering during this time. It's about remembering the generations of waiting and waiting for Jesus to be born. Generation after generation passed that hope onto each other until finally Peter's generation was the generation that saw it. Although it was surprising because Jesus didn't just come from the outside and open the door. Jesus walked into the prison, walked into the prison cell and kicked the door off its hinges from the inside. That's what Jesus did. Shocking to everybody, but the door was open. And so Advent is about remembering and it's about waiting 
remembering their waiting and how they waited for Jesus to come and do that, but it's also about joining in their waiting because even though Jesus has come and broken the door open and there we are, we are not yet fully in that freedom. We're not bound up in those cells. He kicked the door off the hinges, but we're not out of the prison yet, are we? And so we're still waiting. We're not just remembering how they waited. We're joining them now in waiting for that ultimate final new world where we escape this, get out of this altogether and help build this new life together. Advent is a time to remember that we are waiting and to remember what we're waiting for. How much do you like waiting? Does waiting feel like a waste of time to you? It's hard to wait. I feel like we got to do something to fill the time. Think of all the times I'm waiting for Christina to be ready. I got to fill the time. I can't just relax and maybe just talk to her while she's getting ready. I've got to fill the time. I've got to do something. Why not just stop and, and wait and realize that there's, there's value? What if I stopped and instead of saying, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And then doing nothing. What if I stopped and used that time to just know her better? Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrase of, of Romans 8, to 25, where Paul, talk, Paul compares our waiting to being like a pregnant woman. And this is how Peterson paraphrases those words of Paul. He says, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. And then Henry Nowen wrote about that saying, waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him for whom we are waiting. Waiting, it can be, it's not a wasted time. It's an important time to be learning and growing and growing closer to God and growing ourselves. When we forget what we're waiting for, waiting becomes a frustration. But when we remember what we're waiting for, this waiting becomes opportunity, something to cherish. So, what are we waiting for then? The Bible says a lot about what we're waiting for, but I'm just going to focus in with you today on the one thing Peter calls out here and focuses us on. Inspired by God, Peter writes to them, verse 13, and says, therefore, since everyone's been longing for this and hoping for this and waiting for this, therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is it that we're waiting for? Ultimately, Peter points to grace. Grace. I remember as a kid growing up, there were times we exasperated my mother wore her down to her last nerve. Rarely, but sometimes. And ultimately, once we'd worn her down to a nub, she would say, all right, just wait till your father gets home. Now, before then, we'd be happy about my dad coming home. We'd, you know, look forward to it. It would be fun. It would mean it was time for dinner. But when she resorted to saying that, all of a sudden, our perspective changed about dad coming home. Now it was, oh no, dad's coming home. What you're waiting for shapes the way you wait. We throw the word grace around a lot. And sometimes our overuse of that word um, causes us to forget 
how powerful and challenging a word it is and a concept it is, it is perhaps the singular feature that sets faith in Christ apart from all other religions and all other systems of belief. In fact, no other system of belief, no other religion, no religion can understand and wrap its mind around grace. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book, an excellent book, go read it, called What's So Amazing About Grace? Go read that book. I'm going to mention another one from him in a minute. Um, he's written a few good books about grace. Go read them, Philip Yancey. But he, he tells a story about C.S. Lewis, who's one of the uh, most profound Christian writers of all time. Another person to read everything you can find from him. But he talks about there was a, a conference in Britain uh, about comparative religions. And there was a meeting going on and they were debating about, well, what is the difference? What, what sets Christianity apart? What does Christianity add to the world? Uh, what makes it different? And all day they spent debating this. And they began by, you know, let's eliminate all the things that we know are in various religions or several religions. So they said, well, incarnation. Other religions have stories of incarnation. So that's not unique. Uh, what about resurrection? Well, there are other religions that have um, stories and, and elements of resurrection in them. So let's take that off the table. That's not unique. And they went on and on and on debating about what is it that makes, that Christianity uniquely contributes. Uh, it sets it apart and makes it different from other systems of faith or belief. And C.S. Lewis walked in and says, what's the rumpus about? That's my English accent, by the way. There you go. What's the rumpus about? That's going to turn into something weird in a minute. Um, he asked them, you know, what, what's going on, guys? What, what are you all arguing about? And, uh, and they told them what we're trying to understand and talk about and figure out Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. And Lewis said, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And this is what Yancey writes. Because they all kept debating, and then they ultimately came to the point where they said, you know what? You're right. It's grace. Nothing else comes close. No one... No other religion, no other system of belief talks about that. And then Yancey says this. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim and Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to call God's love unconditional. Grace means gift. Not in the way Santa gives gifts. If you're naughty, you get cold. If you're nice, you get... No, grace means free gift. Even though you don't deserve it. How appropriate that at Christmas we remember the gift that we've been giving. We have all these other gifts going around. Let's focus on the real gift here. Remembering that in response to our sin, in response to our rebellion, in response to our selfishness, God gave his own life as a gift, so that we could find life. And that, that changes our relationship with God, doesn't it? When he responds to us that way. We're waiting for Jesus to return and bring judgment and justice to the world, but that waiting isn't colored by fear, like, oh no, daddy's coming home. It's colored by grace, which makes us long for it and wait for it and, and be eager for it. And one day, in Peter's words, Jesus will walk up and hand us this gift of grace, full and complete. That's how he describes it in this verse. He will come and hand it to you. 
on that day we're waiting for, when Jesus returns, he will bring this gift of grace that we're hoping for, that's better than any other gift that anyone's gonna give you this year or any other year. It'll be new life in him. That's the gift of grace Jesus is gonna give you. And for all the things you're spending time worrying about and being anxious about and waiting on, how much time do you spend thinking about that? Setting your mind in that so that you're rooted and that's shaping the way you think and act everywhere else. But there's a catch to all this. Well, not really a catch so much as a a reality check in what Peter writes. Don't start imagining grace as this easy breezy thing that one day you'll be there just, I'm waiting, and Jesus walks up and here's grace. And you're like, oh, cool, thank you. It's not this easy breezy thing. To hope in this grace means to live in this grace, and that's going to take grit and determination. That's going to be an active thing that's going to be a challenge. We're not just sitting waiting for grace. We've got to get up and grab it and hold on to it. Look, look closer at what Peter writes in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope on this grace. Why do I got to tighten my belt? Literally, he says, tighten the belt around your mind. Because if you're going to grab this idea of grace and live by it, you're going to have to tighten up. And actually what he means is we don't wear robes today usually, but they wore long like robes and they'd have a belt around it. And if they were going to have to wrestle or run or do work of any kind, they would have to take that robe and tuck it up under their belt. And that's what he's saying. He's like, get ready for action. Put on your 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 sweat clothes. Put on the stuff you need for working out because if you're going to grab hold of grace and live in it and live for it, waiting for it, it's going to take effort. It's going to take work. It is not an easy thing. Roll up your sleeves. Put on your workout clothing. Be sober-minded, which is the 2,000 years ago way of saying be laser-focused. Now, I kept thinking about that. I mean, anybody who follows the Patriots, who knows Tom Brady, you know, he would say that a lot. Uh, Be laser-focused, everybody. Laser-focused. That's what Peter is telling us we have to do. If we're going to really grab hold of this grace that we're waiting for, we got to be laser focused. I found I heard a story this past week, and I don't, some of you this isn't going to apply to, and you're not going to care, but um, Mac Jones is now the quarterback of the Patriots. And some of you know that, who Mac Jones is, rookie, doing really well. Peyton Manning is one of the all time best quarterbacks ever. And last week, before the, the game, Peyton Manning, who he does his own little Monday Night Football thing, um, he tried to get in touch with Mac Jones to just talk to him ahead of the game. To just, you know, how you doing? How's it going? What are you learning? What's the challenge? Just conversation. And like the whole week, he was trying to get Mac Jones. And the Mac Jones, a rookie quarterback, one of the best quarterbacks ever, and he wasn't calling Peyton Manning back. He wasn't answering his texts. He wasn't nothing for the whole week. Finally, he answers Peyton Manning, one of the best quarterbacks ever, and says, sorry, I don't check my phone during the week uh, much. Um, But hey, I'd really love to sit down and talk with you, but can you call our PR director? Because it's got to go through them. And so Peyton called the PR director, and they said, no, you can't talk to Mac Jones. And it's not just because you are one of our arch rivals for so long. It's because they're protecting him. And Peyton Manning said, actually, I respect that, and I think it was brilliant. They are keeping this rookie, this kid, from being distracted by anything else. They are making sure he doesn't even look at his phone during the week. This kid is laser-focused on one thing, football. The most important thing in the world, right? 
laser-focused on football. Laser-focused. Shuts his phone off for the week for football. Peter is saying, this grace, which is so incomparably greater than football, is something that's going to require laser focus. Shut off your phone. Focus on this grace. Because you got to live in it too. You got to be sober minded. Because grabbing hold of this grace and living in it is going to be like a wrestling match. It isn't going to be easy. It's going to be painfully difficult at times. And if your mind isn't right, if it isn't rooted in Jesus, if you're not ready to hang on tight to this grace, then you're going to lose grip and you're going to be thrown off. Grace isn't easy. How can that be? How could grace, it's this wonderful free gift. How could it not be easy? Let me give you an example of how it can be not easy. In another one of Philip Yancey's books called Vanishing Grace, he tells a story about a World War II veteran who was then serving as a pastor. And this pastor, former World War II veteran, had been assigned to the Dachau concentration camp. Once uh, the Allied soldiers went in, they marched through the gates of Dachau, and he said you know, nothing could prepare them for what they found. They had you know, boxcars, train boxcars, after boxcar, after boxcar, after boxcar, filled with dead and dying bodies. And this is what, just listen to how this, this former World War II veteran who became a pastor, listen to how he described it. It's gonna break your heart. So the buddy and I were assigned to one boxcar. Inside were human bodies stacked in neat rows, exactly like firewood. Most were corpses, but a few still had a faint pulse. The Germans, ever meticulous, had planned out the rows, alternating the heads and feet and accommodating different sizes and shapes of bodies. Our job was like moving furniture. We would pick up each body, which weighed nothing, and carry it to a designated area. He said, I spent two hours in the boxcar, Two hours that for me included every known emotion, rage, pity, shame, revulsion, every negative emotion, I should say. They came in waves, all but the rage. It stayed, fueling our work. And then a fellow soldier named Chuck was given the assignment to escort 12 SS officers, guards, who had been working there at Dachau, uh, to an interrogation center nearby. And we saw him walk off with them. And a few minutes later, uh, we heard bursts of machine gun fire. And then a moment after that, Chuck came strolling back out from behind a building with smoke still curling from the tip of his weapon. They all tried to run away, he said, with a leer. And Yancey said, well, did anyone report this or take any disciplinary action? And the pastor said, no. And that's what got to me. It was on that day that I felt called by God to become a pastor. First, there was the horror of the corpses in the boxcar. I could not absorb such a scene. I, didn't, I did not even know such absolute evil existed. But when I saw it, I knew beyond doubt that I must spend my life serving whatever opposed such evil, serving God. And then came the incident with Chuck. And I had a nauseating fear that the captain might call on me to escort the next group of guards. And even more dread and fear that if he did, I might do the same thing Chuck did. The beast that was within those guards was also in me. Grace means that you and I aren't just going to wrestle with the beast in us that Jesus 
offers forgiveness for. It means we're going to extend that grace to others who behave in beastly ways. Are you prepared for grace? To live in grace? Do you see how it might be difficult to hang on to grace in moments like that? This kind of grace that Jesus models? See, there's cheap grace and there's costly grace. It won't take much mental effort to hang on to the whimsical ideas of cheap grace. But if we want to wait on and live in the real grace that Peter's talking about, the kind this soldier who became a pastor confronted that day, that grace is going to challenge us. But that's the grace we're waiting for. Bonhoeffer, who, who died in one of those concentration camps, he wrote about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And I want you to hear what he wrote. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living in incarnate. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye that causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. The grace that we wait for is costly grace. Jesus paid for it with his life. And if that's the grace you're waiting for, then that's the grace you will live in. The grace we're waiting for becomes the grace we live in. And by grace, Jesus gives you and me a new life. But you can't have that new life without, while you're still holding on to the other one, you've got to let go of the other one and receive this new life. The gift requires you to put down the stuff that's in your hands and then take hold of this new life from Jesus, this new hope. And if you're going to take hold of this gift and receive this gift, roll up your sleeves first because it's going to be moving and it's going to be active and you're going to have to work to hold on to it because it's going to call on you not just to receive that grace but to now live in it. And that's going to be challenged by people. People are going to do things that are going to hurt you and let you down. They already have. You know it. And there are going to be moments when you go through what that soldier went through where you got to decide, do I really want to live in grace or would I rather just mow down these problems in front of me? Other people are going to challenge your desire for grace. They'll do these things that make you prefer to see them suffer and die. Grace is a difficult thing to hope in in moments like that. You're going to have to tighten the belt of your mind and be laser-focused on grace, the grace Jesus gave because that's costly grace. And then sometimes you're going to be the problem. Sometimes you're going to be the one who's letting yourself down. You're going to be the one who's just ashamed and embarrassed of the things you've done and unwilling to accept that Jesus would just forgive you because you asked him and not because you made up for it, but simply because you said, Jesus, I trust you. And I trust what you did for me on the cross and believe you rose from the dead. And you're going to have a hard time sometimes dealing with that and you're going to want to punish yourself or you're going to want to make yourself earn it. And you're going to make your own life miserable by not choosing to live in the grace and thinking, oh, that's only going to be maybe one day. You're going to have to tighten the belt of your mind and re-grip and come to terms with this 
costly grace. Jesus paid the price. You don't need to. If grace is what you're waiting for, then grace is the way you're gonna live. That's what Jesus calls us to. In Advent, Christmas, it's about waiting. It's always been about waiting. Generations and generations and generations with deep longing, waiting for grace to come and wash over this world. Jesus started that. Now it's time to allow ourselves to join him in this, to join him in wanting to see this grace wash over the world and helping make it happen. Let's...